Amen. A prophecy in the psalm is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back and read it and uh, enjoy how those, uh, how those prophecies are all fulfilled in the life of Christ and then in his resurrection as he sings among us, among the people, before our Father together. Now we turn to the Gospel of John again, be continuing through and finishing chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, and these are the words of Christ. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Let us pray. <clears throat> Our Father in God, grant us open eyes and ears, hearts and souls to take in these words of Christ. Fill us. Fill us in the preaching, strengthen our faith in your Son, in the work that he has accomplished, and in the ongoing work of his Spirit in us now. Do so to each and every one here this morning. To those with faith, strengthen. To those without, grant faith in the preaching of your word. Do this, and do it all to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, we are working our way through what is called Jesus' Farewell Discourse. It's chapters 13 through 17, five long chapters that take place in just one short evening. These chapters are actually part of the reason why I never wanted to preach through the Gospel of John. They're, they're difficult. It's a difficult discourse to work through and to understand all that he means. And keeping the context in mind, the whole thing in mind, all of 13 through 17 is really important in order to grasp it all. What's going on here is there's a combination of announcements that the Lord gives, actions that he takes, and then teachings on both the, the announcements and the actions. 
And then finally, a prayer. Chapter 17 is all this prayer before the Father for himself and then for the disciples that are with him and then for all the disciples that are to come, you and me, he has in mind. This is the night of his coming betrayal, only hours away. If you look back in chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So that tells us that this discourse is his love notes, his love letter to his church, to his people. He's going to love them to the end. Even though he knows he's going to be betrayed by one of them, even though he's going to be denied, even though he's going to be handed over and crucified, he's, he is going to love them to the end. He's going to love us to the end. So what happens in chapter 13, interrupting dinner, Jesus gets up and washes the disciples' feet. Then he sits back down and instructs them to do the same, verses 12 through 16. His soul is troubled, he announces. And he says that the reason is, is that one in this inner circle is going to betray him. One who has been with him for three years, trusted disciple, is about to betray him. And after all the confusion that that brings, he tells them that he is going to depart. He is going to leave. Verse 36, he tells the disciples, though, not to let their hearts be troubled over this. In chapter 14, 1, let your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he says that the, 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 uh, the way to not have your heart troubled in the midst of troubling times is faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in what he has done, who he is, and where he sits and reigns today. So he gives them reasons then afterwards for his departure, calling them to believe him and all that the departure would accomplish. He then begins to address them as to how they will join him in that accomplishment, how they will participate in the work of all that his work is going to accomplish in the fulfilling of all of that, how his people are going to join in with him and also how his departure is actually going to bring them into deeper communion with him and with the Father. I'm going away. You've been with me all these years. But don't despair. What's going to happen is actually going to draw us closer together. We will be united in an even greater and deeper and eternal way because of the work I'm about to do. Do not despair. Do not be troubled, he says. And so we get to our passage here, verse 12 and following in chapter 14. Now, there are many verses in this passage that must be understood in context carefully, and yet in such a way that in context isn't used to make the verses actually mean pretty much nothing. And I'm referring really here to uh, verses 12, 13, and 14, the re at, the very, or at the very beginning here where he says that he is going to do, we are going to do greater works than the Father, or the disciples are going to do greater works than the Father. And then he says in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. And, and understanding all of that in context is going to be very, very important. So what I'd like to do, first of all, is I'm going to give you an overview of that passage, uh, of the whole passage, with extra comments that will hopefully then embolden our faith for a deeper understanding and, I believe, fearless application of the text. There is application for us, and I think it's deep. And if you lose me as we're going through this, as I'm sure you will, because it's, it, it really weaves in and out. 
Um, do not despair. Almost everything that is said in these verses is brought up at least two more times throughout the rest of the discourse. Jesus is going to go over and over and over these ideas and hit them from a number of different directions. As I said to you when we began this discourse, I really encourage you to sit down more than once and just read through the whole thing from 13 through 17 and catch the context, catch the whole discourse. Listen to the words of Jesus as he speaks to his disciples right on the heels of the great work that he's about to do for them. Okay, so there are four ideas. There are four ideas that, may, that are made in verses 12 through 18, in verses, the first verses here. And they interact with one another. They can't, they can't really be pulled out and, and discussed or pulled out and understood out of the context of the other three. The four ideas go together. They are intertwined with one another. In verse 12, the first one, um, verse 12, he opens with this remarkable promise that another result of Christ's departure, besides the fact that, he's, um, uh, that he is going to accomplish these great things in, his, in the salvation for us, is that we, he says that because he goes to the Father, um, his disciples will do greater works than Jesus did while he was on earth. That's the first idea. Second one is in verses 13 and 14. He makes reference to prayer and all that would be accomplished by it. And he makes great promises for much to be accomplished through the work of prayer. And then third idea is in verse 15. A connection is made between loving Jesus and keeping his commandments. They go together. Look at verse 15. If you have the New King James Version or the authorized version, then it comes across as a commandment. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you have the ESV or the NIV or one of the other from the other traditions, it's going to say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It doesn't really matter. It could, be, it could be that it's a command here. He also says in other places, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John will say in his epistle, how can you say you love God and not keep his commandments? You're a liar then. Um, so the point is these two go together. Loving God and obeying his commandments are, cannot be separated from one another. There's a third idea. <clears throat> And then the fourth idea is Jesus will pray to the Father, he says, who will send another helper or a comforter, an advocate, a, a, a parakletos, we'll talk about that in a moment, a helper to abide with them forever. That's in verse 16. And, and he says, if you recall back in verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth, but this is the spirit of truth, verse 17. There's a connection, deep connection between Jesus and this helper. He is the spirit of truth. And, um, and, and he is dwelling, he will be dwelling with them, and Jesus speaks and will dwell in them, he says, as well in the future. So in some way, even though he is departing, all of this means he's not leaving them as orphans. And so he says in verse 18, I will not leave you, orphans, I will come to you. So he says he's leaving, and then he's saying, I will be with you. And then he's saying, I will come to you. And, and all of these ideas are being intertwined together as Jesus speaks. So if I walk through the, the, the rest of the passage, again, the helper is mentioned. Well, I'm sorry, the, the next verses riff off of these four ideas. There's this mutual, mutual indwelling the disciples will experience with the Father and with the Son. They will see Jesus in some way that the world cannot because he has departed, verse 19 and 20. So he physically will not be there, and yet we will be able to see him. He will be manifest to us um, in, a, in a great way that the world cannot see. 
Keeping Christ's commandments manifests love for him, which will cause the Father to love the one obeying, and Christ will be revealed in some greater way. That's verse 20 and 21. This causes Judas, not Iscariot, not the one who's going to betray him, but the other Judas among the 12, to wonder why Christ will not manifest himself to the unbelieving, disobedient world in verse 22. And Jesus answers, which doesn't sound like an answer, which oftentimes the Gospel of John seems to drive us to have to think about. He says, why, why are you not going to manifest yourself to the world? Or how are you going to manifest yourself to us and it won't be manifest to the world? And, uh, and, and something to remember is they're expecting a Messiah to come in and, and bring down the political establishment and save the nation. Well, how's that going to happen if the unbelievers can't even see you, Jesus? Aren't you going to come in with your, with your armies, with your legions and angels and, and knock them all down? And, and Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And that's an answer. And you're going to have to work on that. We're going to have to work on that. That's the answer. He answers that the one who loves him will keep his commandments, and the Father and the Son will come and make their home in them. And by the way, that's the same word, mansion, when Jesus says, I'm, I'm going away earlier in the chapter, I'm going away, I'm prepare a place for you, prepare a mansion for you. There are mansions there, same place. Now he's going to come and make his mansion in you. Okay, so deal with that. This unity, this mutual indwelling, obeying and love are all tied together. Even the words of Jesus, he says, are not his alone, but the Father's in verse 24. Again, the helper is mentioned again. Verse 25, he will come and he will teach all things and bring to remembrance all things. And so as in verse 1, where he began the chapter, to let not your hearts be troubled, he says it again in verse 27, and not to be afraid, not to be afraid of anything. There's, there's a great persecution that is only months away for the disciples, for the new church. Do not be afraid. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says. In fact, you are to rejoice that I am going away, Jesus says to the Father, for the Father is greater than Jesus. Verse 28. And remember, Jesus is the way to the Father, so it is good that he goes to the Father, because he's the way to the Father. As with foretelling the betrayal, so Jesus tells them why he is glad. And he tells them these things. He tells them, uh, just beforehand he had said, um, there's one who's going to betray me, and I'm telling you now, so when it happens, you'll believe in me. Here he says, I'm telling you these other things are going to happen about the helper coming, about the Holy Spirit coming, so that when it happens, you're going to believe me. Your faith will be encouraged and, and, and strengthened because I've told you these things which then will come to pass. And you can imagine, you can imagine the disciples in that generation being told that, Jesus leaving, and then for days nothing happening, and then 10 days after his ascension, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in a great roaring wind and fiery tongues. And just like he said, and their faith would have been so strengthened. He was right. The ruler of this world, he says, is about to bring his plans to bear, but he is nothing, Jesus says. He's nothing. And his plans will come to nothing, as even the world will soon see, and that ends the chapter. Okay, so we have four ideas. The four ideas are the greater works, the answered prayer, or dealing with answered prayer, love that gladly obeys, love that is connected to obedience, and the indwelling comforter. These are the four ideas. So let us meditate again. I'm, I'm going to talk about each one of these, and, but I can't talk about any, any one of them without mentioning the other three, 
They have to be understood together. And if we do that, um, we, we will take through the, we will get us through this discourse. And I really do believe that this is a meditation for us, for these ideas will com come up and they will continue to come up in the rest of the discourse. So we're only beginning, I think, we're only beginning this meditation. Verse 12 again, if you go back to verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. It's always important to remember as you're reading something like this, you, you, one of the contexts you want to keep in mind is who is he speaking to? When is he speaking to them? So he's speaking to people with names and faces who are about to experience the gift of the Spirit and the signs of apostleship. Okay, That's who he's speaking to at the moment. And he says to them, um, you're going to do the things that I do. Well, those apostles did indeed do amazing miracles, very similar to Jesus in their ministry as they established the church. In fact, they were given the privilege of working by means of the Holy Spirit to produce the next 27 books of the Bible and close the canon of Scripture. And we are, we are told that these were signs of their apostleship. 2 Corinthians 2.12.12 12, 12 says, truly, uh, Paul speaking of himself, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So signs and wonders and mighty deeds were signs of apostleship or of those who were with the apostles in that era. Hebrews 2.4, the same thing. The writer of Hebrews writes to the, to, to the Christian Jews and he writes to them saying, God also bearing witness just as he did through the prophets before and then through Jesus, God bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, came to you to deliver the word of God according to his own will. It's Hebrews 2.4. But the greater works that Jesus foretold, there were even greater works as well. Because he was at the Father's right hand. He says, because I go to the Father's right hand, you're going to do greater works. And they were much more eternal. Even Lazarus, being raised from the dead, still died. He was resuscitated, but he still died. Even those who were healed still died. They were not brought to eternal life. And yet, the gift that has been given to the disciples that then spread to the church is the gift of giving eternal life in the proclamation of the gospel. Think about that. After Jesus departed to heaven at his ascension, they continued in prayer. They continued to ask. They were told, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. And they go and they are in prayer. In Acts 1.14, you see this. And 10 days later, the Holy Spirit did descend and come upon them in Acts chapter 2. At Pentecost, then, 3,000 souls believed and were saved at the preaching of Peter under the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. And the church begins to explode and expand. Okay? Peter and John are arrested. They're arrested for being faithful and preaching the gospel in the, in the uh, temple in chapter 4 of Acts. And then they're released. And they, when, they, when they pray, they pray that, the might, um, that they might obey the Lord's command to disciple the nation with power and boldness. They express their love and devotion with a, with a, 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 a belief a, a, and a receiving of that charge to obey God, to take the gospel to the nations. They've already been arrested once. They get arrested once, they get released. 
You know, and you might think, okay, I did my duty. I'm going to go back to just my own little quiet life now and take care of myself and my family. Instead, Acts 4, 29, here's what they pray. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness, and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And the greater works go on and on. You read it all through the, through the book of Acts, where city after city after city receives the word of the Lord and many come to faith. Yes, there are, there are other rests and persecutions and trials. Jesus said in this world, there will be many tribulations. He said, if I'm persecuted, you're going to be persecuted too. But he also said, the gospel is going to conquer the world. My reign at the Father's right hand is going to conquer, and it's going to be through you. It's going to be through this spirit-empowered church that I am sending out to do. Those greater works have continued all over the continents of the world, and you and I sit here 2,000 years later because of the greater works that Jesus said that would take place in John 12, 12. You're sitting here believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeing the church grow all over the world because of the work of the Spirit-empowered church over centuries, bringing the Word and its efficacious, life-saving work to the world. Greater works have been done, are being done, and I believe we should understand they will continue to be done as the gospel spreads over the world. So, there are greater works. They are connected to the work of the Spirit, the Helper. They, are, they have to do with answering prayers that are offered. And they have to do with people who love the Lord and who, of course, because they love the Lord, obey give themselves away to the world around them, care and love one another, which is a ministry through the Spirit that speaks to the world that we are His, that we are followers of Christ as we love one another. Now, with that in mind, let's go to 13 and 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There are two ditches to avoid when it comes to these verses related to prayer and, and so many other related verses. Jesus, Jesus doesn't say this just then. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Um, he, he says in an exhortation in the Gospel of Luke, he talks about ask and keep asking like a, the widow pounding on the door. If, if, the, if the widow is pounding on the door, the guy that's been asleep all night is finally going to get up and answer the door. How much more do you think your father will not answer you? He says, ask and keep asking. And then it's not just Jesus who says this. James tells us, uh, James, James tells us, and the prayer of faith, he says in, in James 5, will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And then James says to us, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced fruit. He, he says we're to pray with that kind of faith. Like, like, like nothing could stand in the way of God answering prayer. John writes in his own epistle, he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. And then he, but he, then he connects these things together because we keep his commandments. 
and do those things that are pleasing in his sight because we love him. Because we love him, we pray. Because we love him, we obey. Because we love him, we humble ourselves. It all, it all goes together. Well, so what are the ditches? Well, the first ditch is, is pretty obvious. Um, sorry, we are not like a bunch of Aladdins who've been given a lamp, and Robin Williams jumps out and says, hey, <laughs> I'm your guy. Whatever, whatever you want, just ask for it. Even in, even in the movie, there's some fine print that he goes through, but you'll have to go there to see. So, but, so the first is obvious. Um, we can't pray for the illogical. Lord, please make round squares. We can't pray for the immoral. Father, grant me every sinful activity without any cost. We can't pray um, for other kinds of prayers, um, like create seven more moons circling the earth, because I'd really like that. Or take me back to live in the 16th century. I'd like to time travel now, Father. Or grant the ability to read everybody's mind, which would be a horror, actually, if God granted that to you, right? Um, no, th that's, that's, that's the one ditch. What he means is you can ask anything, and I mean, I literally mean anything and everything. Okay, so the, the problem is that the other ditch that we oftentimes fall into, especially those in the Reformed faith who believe in the predestination of all things by God is, well, then why pray? If, if it's all been predestined, and if you're only going to pray according to exactly to God's will, shouldn't we just always pray like Jesus prayed, if it be your will? That, that becomes the other ditch, and it doesn't take very long until you start wondering why bother to pray, right? So, so what about lawful desires? Because they're not always answered, and the answer is oftentimes unwelcome. And so we're tempted to pray, to fall into that, well, we pray, if it be your will, as an all-purpose all escape clause, which then makes praying ineffective in the end. Like, I don't, my prayers don't really change anything because God has already predestined the, the ends. But what if he's also predestined the means? What if he's also predestined how he's going to accomplish the things that he has predestined? And the way he's going to accomplish those is your prayers. And not just your prayers like you're making a request to a genie, but your prayers that come because of a mutual indwelling of you with the Father and the Son by means of the Holy Spirit in communion with Him. Um, so uh, I, I, I want to quote here from Doug Wilson who addresses this tension. He writes these words. He says, now these passages, he's referring to all of these passages with regard to asking God and praying to God for anything. And, and then the passage where Jesus says, um, but not my will, but yours be done. He says, these passages are addressing two different kinds of situation. The former is when God wants us to be content and to be resigned to his will. And so Jesus, struggling with what he knows is going to happen, submits himself, not because he doesn't know what God's will is, but because he does. Okay, that's different. He knows what God's will is and he submits to it. Okay, the latter is when he wants us to learn in, lean into prayers that are risky. To lean into prayers that are risky. To pray prayers that you don't know for sure if God is going to answer just the way you want, in the way you want, the time you want. Jesus wants us to pray in that way as well. Here's what he says. He says, how do we tell the difference between these two? Well, we're to recognize the differing situations by faith and we are to resign ourselves by faith, and we are to risk by faith. 
but we want to know how can we learn to risk things in prayer? Well, by taking risks. No, no, we reply. We want to learn how to take risks without actually taking any. It would be lovely to know how to ride a bicycle, and it would be even more lovely never to have skinned a knee. And so prayer is a risky thing. Entering into prayer with God is a risky thing, and we are to lean into it. We are to learn to lean into prayer in such a way that we are growing in understanding God's will. Because as we lean into prayer, as we participate in prayer, we are participating in the rule of Jesus over all of creation. And we're doing so in communion with him, in union communion with him in the spirit. And so when we are praying, there's more than just our requests going on. There is the deepening understanding, the deepening relationship that we individually and as a church experience as we grow up into Christ, as we grow up as co-reigning with him in the heavenlies. There is a proper humility for us to have as we pray in the midst of a circumstance we wouldn't choose. There's a proper humility when we are in the midst of the trial that we don't want. Just as Jesus did in, in the garden. However, in, in this context, in this context of a deep mutual indwelling with the triune God and a love that brings forth obedience, we will be shaped to pray for that which is according to his perfections and for his glory. Look, you can't, you can't conclude that therefore it doesn't matter if I pray when Jesus commands you to pray. You can't conclude that nothing happens in prayer when Jesus goes off and prays. And then all his disciples go off and pray. And then all who wrote the scriptures of the New Testament tell us over and over again to pray without ceasing, to pray constantly. When Jesus teaches you the Lord's Prayer that covers all kinds of things, all kinds of subjects that you are to be praying about, you can't conclude that prayer doesn't accomplish anything if Jesus commands it, if his disciples uh, show it by example and also command it. And frankly, you can't say that, that prayer accomplishes nothing if you have prayed by faith, if you have kept track as you've prayed by faith and watched as believers see time and time and time again, God answer prayer. The testimony of God answering prayer is is well, more than 2,000, but since Christ, 2,000 years old, the, the stories of answered prayer are innumerable today. Lean into prayer. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm about to send you out into a world that will hate you. I'm about to send you in a wor world that will not understand you. I'm about to send you out to be a people that are very different than the rest of the world. And I'm telling you, when you're there, I'm with you. And you can talk to me. You can pray to me. And I will watch over you. You will not be alone. And that really leads to the next couple of sections here as well. So we pray, and he says, we, we pray in his name. He says, and whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Now, it is true, uh, and we've talked about this, to pray in Jesus' name, like we do often at the end of a prayer, it is not a tag that we put on so that we can say, okay, now you can open your eyes. In Jesus' name is the way that we are approaching the Father. He's the way to the Father. And it's only because of, of blood that's already been shed for us that we can enter into the righteous presence of a holy God. And so we come before him and we ask in Jesus' name. That's all true. And I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Okay, that's all true. But I think what he's talking about particularly 
is I want you to understand my will. I am going to be reigning. I am going to be with you. I am going to be with the Father. And you, well, he calls these, these people are called his apostles. Apostles are sent one with the authority of the one from whom they've been sent. Okay, that's what an apostle is. We are all little apostles, little A apostles. We have all, the church has been sent. And we speak on behalf of Jesus to the nations. Okay? So when we offer prayers to the Father, we offer prayer, we should be offering prayers that we know Jesus would want to have offered. Okay? That, that's why certain prayers are certainly excluded. And that's why we have to lean in and risk as we become more and more like Christ and learn to ask for the things Christ would ask for. We are to pray in his name. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so we will pray in his name, that is on his behalf, and that will become more and more our will as well. Just as there is a united will between Jesus and the Father. Jesus never prayed for something the Father did not want to give. With only one exception we see in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And even then, as Jesus prays, he's communicating to the Father what, in his humanity, what he knows is going to be horrific. And even in his divinity, what he understands with regard to the separation he's going to experience um, and the wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon him. But in, in the same sentence, in the same hour, he says, not my will but yours be done. And we are told in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured. He endured not only that prayer, but the cross. He knew what was going to come from it. He knew it was right. And boy, when we learn to pray like that, when we learn to humble ourselves and, and, and say and resign ourselves in the midst of, um, like Paul says in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12 also, when he, sa he says, I, I, the, I have this thorn in my flesh and I beseech the Lord three times to remove it. And, and God comes to me and he says, my grace is sufficient. And, and Paul doesn't end there and resign himself and resign himself to say, okay, so I've just got to endure it. Quite the opposite. He says, well, if that's true, if his grace is sufficient, then I rejoice in my tribulations. I look forward to them. Bring them on. Only faith gives us that kind of response. Only faith in, in understanding what Jesus is talking about in 13 through 17, and then what he does in 18 through 21. Only faith in that is going to give us that kind of ability to walk through the trials and then also learn to pray in such a way to see the world changed, to see the world changed. That's what is promised in answered prayer. Okay, jump with me to verse 15. But keep those things in mind. These are all connected, as I said. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Or if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Romans 5 says this. It says, the love of God, the love of God, if you love me, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Now the Holy Spirit then is the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, their mutual indwelling. We've talked about this before. The Holy Spirit is the, is the person, is a person who is the love the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. The perfect love and mutual indwelling of the Father and Son is the person, the third person of the Trinity. The, that perfect love is a person who dwells in believers then. 
This is why John would write in his apostle. So with that in mind, think about this. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. The spirit of truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected, or it could be translated completed. The the love of God is completed in him. By this we know that we are in him. Also 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For those who know the love of God. For those who are indwelt by the love of God. Then his commandments are not burdensome. Why would they not be burdensome? Well, think about it. If you are, if you are empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit... Who loves, who, who loves the Father, loves the Son, is the, is the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, and, and loves their will, and He indwells you, well, then you're going to love the things that the Father loves. You're going to love the things that the Son loves. And to obey is no burden anymore. And, and, and while it can be, oftentimes, verses like this in 1 John, uh, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, or if... Um, if you say that I know him, but you don't keep commandments, you're a liar, is oftentimes used as a test and could be understood as a test. How do I know if I'm a Christian? Well, do you love his word? Do you love his people? These are the kinds of things that John is bringing out. And that's true. But John, even as he's writing his epistles, that's not, his main, that's not the main reason he's doing this. What's more important is, is that it's gracious good news that those who love God keep his commandments and his commandments aren't burdensome. That's good news. God is personally at work in you. God is personally at work in us, in every believer. Paul writes about this in Philippians 2. He's at work in every believer to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He is at work in you by the means of who? By the Holy Spirit. He's at work in you to will and to do, to desire and to be able to obey him. He also promises in Philippians 1.6 that he's going to complete the good work that he's begun. And the Spirit sealed in us is his guarantee that he's going to accomplish that. The Spirit ruthlessly, ruthlessly says to you sometimes, I'm sorry, I'm not leaving. Sometimes we grieve the Spirit. And even in the grieving of the Spirit, the Spirit says to you, tough. I'm not leaving. And that's when we receive oftentimes the discipline of the Lord. We lose the joy of our salvation. That's what Psalm 51 is talking about. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I don't think David lost his salvation. He lost his joy because of his sin. He grieved the spirit. He didn't want the spirit to depart. Don't, Don't depart from me. And the spirit at work in him grants him such repentance that he writes a psalm that we all sing now. God works in you that way. God's Spirit works in you that way. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, oh, I'll get this in just a minute. The Holy Spirit is called our comforter. And frankly, I think far too often, you think, we, we are taught to think of the Holy Spirit as a kind of like a spiritual heated blanket. Ah, oh, feels good. Holy Spirit. Mm. I think you should think of him more as a coach. You should, you should think a little bit more of him as um, basic training officer. I'm here to make sure that you succeed. Let's get to work. 
It's a lot more like that, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Right? Now, he is sealing us, reminding us, encouraging us, um, and assuring us of our salvation. One of the things that that basic trainer is going to say is, I succeed every time. You're going all the way. Here we go. Let's go. Holy Spirit's in you. He's the seal guaranteeing your inheritance. And, and that's Ephesians 1.13. You see, the old man could not obey God. But now the love of God is ours, indwells us, and we find ourselves given the desire and ability to walk according to his word. Or think of it this way. Just as a human father loves and disciplines his child, we'll find that his child, if he's doing it faithfully, if he's doing it rightly, his child imitates him, begins to follow follows him, and, and wants to obey, wants to please his dad. How much greater as God's Spirit works in us, as the Father works in us through the Spirit, do we find ourselves wanting to please the Father more and more and more? And then acting more and more like the Father would have us. And that leads us to our final one, and that is the indwelling comforter. I will pray, verse 16, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. And I think that was maybe referring to Christ dwelling with them physically right now. The spirit was in him. He was, and, and he says, and, and will be in you. At Pentecost, the spirit was going to come in them in a way he had not before. So we've seen him, the Holy Spirit, in his work in the other three ideas, but there is some more to consider here. The Greek word parakletos has a broad range of meanings, Advocate, legal advisor, helper, companion, counselor, comforter, I say coach. The old KJV translation, comforter, did, didn't sound like that warm quilt back then. The word comforter meant to strengthen, to come alongside, to encourage. That, that came out much more in, in the old English use of the word comfort, comforter. So he strengthens us and intercedes for us, and he bears fruit in us and makes us able to understand spiritual things that the world cannot understand. Paul, writing about this in 1 Corinthians 2, tells us that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. We are able to understand the revealed things of God his word, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. You, somebody who's come to Christ later in life might realize this. Maybe they went to church. Word of God didn't mean a whole lot. Yeah, it's blah, 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 Jesus, blah, 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 Bible, blah. And then the Spirit comes. And all of a sudden, this book is like fire and comes alive. It's like the best meal you ever had and satisfies. It's like finally a sense of direction and purpose, meaning for me, for my people. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit takes this word, takes this word. When, 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 when Paul writes to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit by the word, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs. So it's, it's not that the Spirit goes, it's not, not that God says, he'll look a little low on the Spirit here. Let me give you another quote. Another quote there of Spirit. Okay, you're filled up. No, 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 no. It's the work of the Spirit filling you with the word of Christ. So you might understand and believe and walk according to it, according to him. So that's the work of the Holy Spirit, strengthening, praying for us, groaning before God with us for the final re resurrection. 
Well, simply put, he brings the word to life in our hearts. And that word is not only data. Here's what's really important. He takes the word and he puts it in our hearts. But all you engineers, stop it. We're not talking about just data and instructions or information or teaching. That's not what he is. The word is Jesus Christ. The word that the Spirit places in you is Jesus Christ. He is in you, Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. He has made his home in you, along with the Father, who calls you his sons as well, heirs according to the promise. I mean, it's, it's really a mess here. It's a theological mess in, in John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Because in this, we're told that Jesus is in you, and that the Father is in you, and that the Holy Spirit is in you and that the Father is in the Son, and that the Spirit is the Father with the Son. And when we thought, okay, the Father is in heaven, and Jesus went and ascended to the Father in heaven, and then he sent his Spirit, and it's the Spirit of Christ in us. That looks, that just is nice and clean and tidy, Jesus. And Jesus says, you better go back and read my chapters again. It's not quite so neat and tidy. Because by means of the Spirit, the Father is dwelling in you. By means of the Spirit... Jesus Christ is dwelling in you. By means of the Spirit, God has made his home in you, just as he's promised he's taking you home. That's what's going on to those who cry out in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is why Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is why Jesus will later say, It is to your advantage that I go away. We don't want you to go away. We want Jesus. We want the physical Jesus right here. He says, no, it's so much better if I go away. So much better if I go away. And this is why he can say, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And, and as, as I said, these are truths that require much meditation. Christ's departure, his death on the cross, his ascension to heaven and to his Father has brought us into a deeper communion with him and with the Father by means of the Spirit. In Christ, to be a Christian fundamentally means that you are brought into the life of the Trinity, to eternal life and love itself. Or you could say into eternal life and liberty himself. That your joy may be full and all to the praise of his gracious glory. Jesus said, also, I'm doing all of this to glorify God the Father. And it's for us, it's for all of us who would cry out to the Lord in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, loving God, make your presence known now in these hearts. Let your spirit have his way within us.